out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are, Jim. Thank you for the update. Hello, welcome. This is The C86 Show, and I'm David Eastor. I'm with you right through to the end and beyond, or not. As you know, we love indie pop, and um, we always like a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the hangman's beautiful daughters. Daughters. Check that out. Because I spoke to Sandy Fleming, 007, very recently um, to find out more about life, love, and poetry, all the way from Las Vegas, USA. Now, on this recording, I occasionally sound like a Dalek. Something slightly the connection. Well, not the connection, but anyway... It didn't always sound perfect, but um, it's still quality chat, and that's the main thing. And the reason, and there are many reasons for having this interview, is that the band have got a compilation coming out of their early stuff. That is titled Smashed Full of Wonder, and it's come out on the Preston label, Optic Nerve Records, home of Ribble Cycles, and also Tom Finney from PNE. Press the North End. So this is the interview, and after several minutes um, chatting about the wonders of Las Vegas, we got down to that world that is reissues, repackaging, and all that other exciting malarkey. This is it. Sandy, save the interview before the listener goes to sleep. It's over to you. Yeah, I'm really happy with, with the way that it is, it's turning out, the, the optic nerve one. It's, yes. Um, it's on a blue-coloured vinyl. Um, it has, I think, a 12-page booklet, so there's going to be a ton of photos. Um, also, Jal Head from the Swell Maps and the TV Personalities has written the blurb for us. And I think the best thing about it is, you know, apart from the validation and having it remastered, is the fact that um, getting in touch with the guys again after a really long period of time was great. We spent most of December in a joint email which I don't often do. So I would get up in the morning and they're already eight hours ahead of me. And I had to sort through this enormous email to try and work out what they're talking about. And it was basically a lot of memories being dug up. Um, I've been in contact with Phil, our bass player, for many years now. Um, but I've only just recently reconnected with Gordon and then lately our drummer, Ray. So there was a lot of catching up to do. Yes, well, absolutely. I was just going to say, because your voice is coming through really well. Mine's a little bit weird. But when, when you're chatting, I probably won't say anything because it kind of makes it a little bit um, broken up. So, um, yeah, so don't, don't think I've dropped dead or anything, don't, you know, because <laughs> it hopefully hasn't happened. But, you know, sometimes it's like, God, he hasn't said anything. It's just because I can hear the vocal just kind of, um, yeah, just kind of interrupt. It's a bit like... I don't know, when you're kids and you've got those two tin cans and a bit of string. It's, it's bizarrely sometimes quite similar to that, even in the 21st century. You know, so, um, yeah, so don't worry if you think, hmm, is he still there? I am still there. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah, so sorry. So, yeah, so I thought I'd just put that in. But, yes, so it's it's fascinating because having I, – I do love all these kind of um, – I, yeah, I suppose that's the thing with archiving. I do love the fact that somebody is started, you know, and there's these three little record labels 
like I said, there's one in New York, one in Germany, and then this other one in Preston, who, as well as Cherry Red Records, have just started sort of going through and getting all these kind of little bits and pieces kind of nicely put together. Because in a way, if they don't do it now, it's never going to get done. And in the case of a lot of bands, they just did a few flexi discs and a few 12-inch singles. Like there's a, ba there's a band called um, The Sidleys that I sort of managed to track down the singer and and again you know i was looking thinking god they've they never even brought out an album but they did a lot of good stuff and they did a couple of john peel sessions and all that kind of and then you know the band finished they all went and had to get on with their lives and see if they could actually get a job and um then you know 20 or 30 years later some sort of slightly obsessive fan <laughs> comes along and goes i really want to put out a compilation of your stuff and and it is great and it's great that with this compilation and collection that like you're saying it, it comes with a, it's going to come with a 12-page booklet with hopefully never never seen before photographs as well which has been fascinating well a lot of them I haven't actually seen so that was that was quite a shock to get um especially the poorly taken Instamatic you know the little Kodak cameras we used to have um I have quite a large library of really good black and white because I used to I used to be pretty good at photography in my time um but also the little Instamatics the little poorly taken colour photographs. Um, they're a lot of fun to see those again, I have to say, and some of them I had not seen before. So after like a 30-something year break, I really enjoyed that. Some of them had to be cleaned up, um, creases removed and turn up the contrast and thing and send them back. So that's really what we spent most of December doing. Yes. And was, it, and was it a bit of a surprise when this project fell into your mailbox? Not really, no, because um, although I hadn't really talked to Gordon for quite a few years, um, let me think, Cherry Red had been asking us quite a bit if we could just, if he could just put a track on a compilation. There were two, um, I think one was C87 or C86. The other one was called Scared to Get Happy. I'm just going through my notes. Yes, I think yes, it was probably... I do sound like a Dalek, don't I? Um, yes, I think oh. that it, I think it will probably was scared to get happy because C86 came along. They they sort of redid that again with that was with um, 66 tracks, but you wouldn't have you wouldn't have even been formed then. But then they, they that was a success, so they did C87, 88, and 89. So it might it could have been one of the latter ones, I guess. But um, you can see that Cherry Red Records were suddenly on a creative roll with that one. Yeah, I mean, Scared to Get Happy one is pretty extensive. There's there's a booklet, there's a ton of photos. Um, and we were asked at the time, um, do you have any more tracks? Because then we could put out an album. And I'm like, this is all we have. Um, but it kept the flame alive until I finally reconnected with Gordon. So I think the timing is is all right. It's supposed to be around this time. You know what I mean? It's um, Optic Nerve seems to do a really good job. Yes, well, oh, yeah. it, is, it is quite good. And, and what I also noticed, and this, this happened kind of last year and with a, a few other things, that 30 years seems to be a passing of time where for whatever reason, you know, um, we could, I don't know. I mean, 30 years seemed to be a passing of time because there was a couple of punk books, no, fanzine books that came out. And, and it was like the fanzines of the kind of 80s more than those kind of the classic ones in the punk period. And it was like, and, I'm, and I, I was thinking to myself, I'm sure that for quite, for over two and a half decades, we were just throwing those in the, the recycling, not even landfill. And then suddenly one day someone went, no, 
they're archived. We could put them in a museum. We can, they're really important. You know, suddenly it's that crossover between, oh, just chuck it away to, no, my God, that's, that's amazing. And we could even, if you put it on eBay, you might get £10, but let's not worry about the eBay. Let's put it in a museum and create an exhibition. It's like, oh, great idea. Suddenly it takes on a different value, doesn't it? And, and I think, you know, with that, you know, like that, that was the fanzine thing. And then with the music, it's almost like there was all this amazing music made in the 80s and there was so much of it. And it was like, yes, whatever. And then it's like, God, you look back and then suddenly people are starting to put up all these posters, all these indie nights that happened during the 80s. We had three bands for like one pound fifty, and you think, God, they're really good bands. And they did, you know, some really good material. But we, you know, we just went along in a slightly sleepy. Yeah, that's really cool. Let's drink lots of cider and get drunk beforehand. And then you suddenly think, oh, God, that was that was almost a golden time. And you think there's no photographs. Oh, there's one. It's a bit rubbish. No, it's fine. We'll put it in. A, we'll put it in a book. So I think 30 years seems to be, seems to do something to, but I don't know, our brains or something like that. I don't know. It almost seemed to me like 20 years. Nah, that was too long ago. Nobody's interested. 30 years. Okay, now people are interested. My son's interested. My son's friends are interested. Yes. Um, I think it just the timing is just right for this one, because as I say, optic nerve, I noticed they were putting out um, a servants reissue. They put out um, Phil King's Apple Boutique. And suddenly I'm becoming aware of all this stuff is being reissued. So I contact them and I'm like, hey, I did the photos for these. Can you send me a couple of copies? Um, and that's really how I started becoming interested again. And as I say, we kept the flame going with Cherry Red. And by the time I got in contact with Gordon, he was, yeah, I have tapes of extra tracks. So we have enough to flesh out an album. And I just think they've done a really good job with working with what they had. I mean, we were rough and ready, but it's been remastered. It does sound a lot brighter and a lot jangly this time around, to my ears anyway. Yes, we love a bit of jangle, which is always quite exciting. Oh, we do. He sounds like a, I still like sound like a Dalek. But look, so, so what with your own <laughs> musical world? Um, yes, how did it all... So when you were growing up, you know, in those formative teen years, I, you know, confess I'm in my mid-50s now, so, you know, it was like the early Top of the Pops world of, the, you know, the glam of especially the sweet, because we love the sweet. And also I did want to be in Gary's gang, but thankfully wasn't, because that would have been bad. <laughs> but then, you know, luckily my first single was David Bowie's Space Oddity. But, you know, like Top of the Pops, hugely, ex you know, excited stuff on a Thursday night and then listening to the radio on a Sunday for the top, 20 or something that they used to have a countdown and we'd get very excited when a when a record moved two places up or down and went my god this is amazing it was in that you know everything took quite a long time in those days didn't it um but so what what were you sort of listening to musically in your in your sort of formative teen years well my formative years I was doing um David Casty and the Bay City Rollers like a lot of my friends um and I remember Yes, the, the charts, it was always like Slade went straight into number one. They never messed around, did they? No, they It was always like just straight in there and they would stay there for a while. Um, I think at some point I was beginning to not particularly care. Let's say when the 80s come around, I was not into drum machines and synthesizers, I have to say. Um, soft Cell, Duran Duran, it didn't really interest me. So I started going back. Um, I started listening to... Well, more of the Beatles, more of the Stones, um, Bob Dylan. Um, Radio 2 had a, an awful lot of what they called easy listening stuff that your parents listened to. So I was beginning to listen to Frank Sinatra, um, Matt Monroe, 
who's a British guy, um, Jack Jones, who my mum loved. Yeah, because I, I can vaguely remember Radio 2 was very much a, um, I think Max Bygraves used to have some sort of show that I seem to sort of remember it being quite frightened of Radio 2 in my youth because it was so odd, you know, this kind of cheesiness. But bizarrely, when I was in very young, I used to sort of obviously sort of obviously <laughs> living at home with my parents, my mum being at home, have the radio on and it was like Radio 2, but it was like those kind of songs of... Um, uh, the Burt Bacharach kind of songs that yes. I absolutely loved. And there was a programme, oh, yeah, it was Jimmy Young and What's the Recipe Today, Jimmy? And so I was quite influenced by people like Burt Bacharach and then The Carpenters a bit later. And I loved the lyrical content of The Carpenters, which had a huge influence on my life because obviously I think if you like The Carpenters, you're definitely going to like Joy Division and The Smiths because, frankly, they're just coming from the same hymn sheet, aren't they? I think The Carpenters were a little too sad for me. I, she's just I love even sad. now when I hear you love them I mean even when I hear a Christmas song now it's just I don't think anybody makes Christmas sound as depressing as Karen Carpenter I gotta be honest but um yeah I said I did actually start turning back to the 60s um as I say I was a big fan of the birds actually my first single I ever bought do you remember you could go into the post office and there would be ex-jukebox singles do you remember that? Because nobody in America knows what I'm talking about. Well, I, 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 I grew I grew up in a um I grew up in a village, and to be honest, I, I, all I can remember was being scared by the woman behind the counter because you had to ask for things and they had to go and get them. So the post office wasn't such a big thing in our lives. I mean, I was a bit scared of the post, you know, because you had to get postal orders, didn't you, if you wanted to send yeah. money away. But no, I can't remember that. I remember sort of things like Woolworths having sort of um, I don't know. I don't know if this is a bit later, but, you know, they used to have all the cheap singles, didn't they, for 10p that, um, I don't know, people used to either buy or try and shoplift and things like that, apparently. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there were record, there were there was access to, to music through, say, you know, as you say, um, uh, Woolworths. But for some reason, our tiny little post office in London, they had ex-jukebox singles. Most of them you were not interested in, but they were like five uh, 5p or whatever it would have been called back then when they were shillings. Anyway, the first one I ever bought was Mr. Tambourine Man by The Birds, and the, uh, it was back to If I Knew I Want You. And so later on, that bought me an awful lot of credibility. I have to say, that being my first single, because most girls would be, um, if first single was David Casti or Donny Osmond, but I'm quite proud of the fact that my first single was Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man. Um, I'm just going to move. I'm not comfortable here. Yes. Um, well, it was quite, I, I guess, you know, it was quite interesting you were sort of talking about David Cassidy because there was also David Soul, wasn't there? And the Bay City Rollers were the other, the other main band, as well as Donnie and Marie, which were quite frightening, really, coming to look at it. But, but it was quite good. Donnie and Marie, Donny Marie have just finished their, um, their long-running engagement here in Las Vegas. Yes, I don't know how Vegas is going to cope without them and Celine. I mean, frankly, it's going to be... I don't know. The strip might look very kind of cold and empty without those showstoppers, but um, that's weird, isn't it? Though they're all leaving at the same time. It's a bit apocalyptic for Vegas, isn't it? To lose not one but three great artists of modern time. I just wonder who's going to follow them because it's people that were maybe teen sensations who are now well into their late middle age. Well, because to be honest, I, I, you know, because I always think it's quite fascinating, the residency thing. And um, 
And I always, the, the same name always come up, Duran Duran. I always think they could, you know, because you've got to tick enough boxes. And I think they were quite popular in America, I'm sure. But they, they kind of, would, they're the demographic, aren't they? They are just perfect. Them and, Sh um, yeah, Shania Twain, you know, could keep Vegas still going. That's my theory. There's a thought, Duran Duran. Yes, the red on the strip. On the strip, yeah. I think you know. I, I can imagine the bass player would love it, actually, Mr. Taylor. <laughs> I mean, it was good. So look, when when we were trucking into the eighties, you know, we were sort of we, you know, Thatcher was empowered by one year, and there was a lot of unemployment. So at that stage, were you, you know, aware? You must have been aware of that kind of the punk, post-punk kind of, you know, no future. Jesus, there was, you know, so everyone was unemployed at that stage, weren't they? Well, everyone I knew. Yeah. So it wasn't it wasn't looking particularly good. So the indie scene, I, I suppose indie. See, I put indie down between the years of 83 to 87, which, to be honest, are the years of the Smiths. There was a kind of golden period, wasn't there? Jingly jangly music at that stage. So were you kind of also sort of getting down and, and, and groove into that kind of world as well? Sure. I mean, I I met um, Dan Tracy for the TV personalities. I was still, we were both teenagers and that was way before the 80s. Um, we used to hang out on the King's Road in Chelsea. There was a pub. I don't know if it was called The World's End or, but now I think about it, we were all really young. What were we doing in a pub? And how did that pub ever make money? Because I don't think we drank much. We wouldn't have in our teens. <laughs> but, yeah, there were bands like um, Reactor, the VIPs, um, the Piranhas, um, local guys that would just play in this pub on the King's Road in Chelsea, and that's where I met Dan and Ed Ball from the uh, TV personalities. So from a pretty early age, I was already hanging out with people who were really into being in bands. And I started photographing them because I had a little dark room under the stairs in my parents' house. So we, oh, so were you brought up in London? Yes. Ah, Born and raised. God, so you've got, you've got a whole sort of, for everybody else, especially if you're from the countryside like me, you had no chance really of being ever cool. So you really were right in there sort of on the zeitgeist, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, I used to get up and for um, high school, I would cross the Thames twice a day. And um, there were just a lot of people. Um, was it X-Ray Specs? They lived down the road. They lived somewhere in Fulham. Um, a lot of my friends lived in Fulham and Chelsea. I was over the river on the south side and it was quite boring. But um, yeah, I mean, spending a Saturday hanging out on the King's Road, that was perfectly normal to us, you know. Um, and we didn't think anything else of it. Yes. Didn't even think about yes. people not living in London, to be honest. So Dan, Dan Tracy <laughs> is a legend, isn't he? So how did you manage to sort of get to to meet him? Because obviously he he then sort of plays a massive part in that kind of the early years of indie, doesn't he? He does, yeah. Um, as I say, Dan was not already a, maybe a legend in the small world that we inhabited, but um, Dan would come to see other bands play at this pub on the King's Road because Dan's parents lived on the King's Road. There was um, a little high-rise on the bend and his parents lived there and Dan lived with them. So he was right in the middle of it all. Um, I just met Dan and Ed around that time and Dan and I got on really well. We were like, he was in his late teens, I was still in my mid-teens and we both shared a love of everything 60s. I mean, movies, music, clothing. And we just started hanging out. We were we were friends for about twelve years, I think, until I left town. Ah, 
Oh. I'm at that stage. I know this is because I've got a brother who's about seven years old and he, you know, in those days kind of listening to new music was always a bit tricky. And um, yeah, and he, he was the one who introduced me to that, that world of prog rock, which was interesting. But I know he had one of those books like, you know, the most of the, you know, like the essential records of albums of that period. I suppose this must have been in the 70s. And, um, and so, you know, as a young person, I would try to sort of get hold of them. And one of the kind of, you know, classic albums was The Hangman's Beautiful Daughter, you know, The Incredible String Band. The, um, right. So, so was... Was that connection through you to sort of um, get into, um, yes, the Hangman's Beat, yes, the Incredible String Band? I wasn't really a fan of theirs. I was more a fan of Fairfoot Convention, to be honest. I used to go to Crop Ready when it was still fairly small. And they would have the festival up, I think it's just outside Birmingham. And it was a fairly small festival of folky people. So it was kind of mellow. There was never undertones of violence that you might find at Stonehenge or those kind of festivals. Because apparently now they've become very, um, I don't want to say corporate, but they've become very well organised. Um, yes, I think, yes, I think they're very, yes, very together, aren't they? But they're uh, definitely the, the extreme end to uh, Stonehenge, which was quite interesting. Because I just did an interview with a guy from the legendary Pink Dots and he was talking about, before they were in a band, they saw, um, yes, Hawkwind at Stonehenge in about 97. I think wow. it's a bit, a bit apocalyptic, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm talking about this would have been, say, early 80s. We would go see Fair, Fairport Convention. Um, as I say, it was up in Crop Ready, and it was still a fairly small event. I think it did get bigger over the years. And it was more of a folky crowd, so they're more mellow anyway. Um, where was I going with that? Hangman's Beautiful Daughters, it's does come from the incredible string band but i have to be honest i'm not a big fan it was just it was just a good name yes um, how did the band come around well as i said i was friends with dan and ed and dan was always trying to tell me i should form a band and i'm like well i can't really sing and i don't really play an instrument so i don't know how that's going to work so dan gave me guitar lessons um the kind of lessons that horrified some of my friends who could play the guitar really well, I have to say, they would be like, that's not a G. Why is your thumb there? And I'm like, because that's how I feel like playing. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so he tried to get, a, there was a friend of mine, Carol, and he was trying to put a band together. Like he wanted to be Al Svengali or something, but he did actually, we did do our first gig. Carol and I did our gig. We had long matching black wigs and we stood behind Jow, Jow Head. And we just had a bunch of chords written on the floor and we just stood behind and played with him. I don't remember that gig quite so well, but I think the Jesus and Mary chain were there. And they were asking us, like, so what are you trying to be, the strawberry switchblade or something? Um, so that ended pretty quickly. It wasn't till I met Emily that it, we seriously began to think of it as an idea. Um, Emily took to it really well. Yes, she started yes. writing songs and she wasn't shy. She had a good voice. Um and then you've heard of the ambulance station? Well, I've only just come across this kind of iconic place because, to be honest, no, I never heard of it. I'd heard of all the other little indie event uh, venues because, um, I don't know, you know, the guy who put together, or one of them, who put together the C86 book, um, cassette that came out on with the NME, the 22-track cassette, Neil Taylor, he did a very good book on 
C86 and all that, and he does reference all these little venues around the place, like the, the uh, Anna McGee's living room, and there was the loft, and, and there's various other little venues. But I had not come across this uh, iconic place, which sounded a bit like the factory, Andy Warhol's factory. So was this a place that you were also living at or became aware of? No, um, our guitarist Gordon and a young man named Alvin, they lived there and they would put on gigs. Um, I think the Jesus and Mary Chain did a now legendary gig there, which kind of melted into a riot of some sort. There are photos of it out there. Um, we went down, Emily and I went down to visit um, Gordon and Alvin and we were asking them if they'd like to join our band. And Gordon just reminded me of this. I'd completely forgotten that Gordon started as our drummer which is really hard to imagine because he's a really good guitarist. He had um, a 12-string, which gave us solid jingle. Um, let me think. And Alvin was on bass for a little while. And then, let me see. We then moved on. We borrowed the rhythm section from the Servants, David Westlake's band. Yes. And that was Phil King on bass and John Wills on drums. I don't think Dave was too happy about that. He thought we were trying to steal them. But they just helped us out on the first recordings, which were an EP on Dan's Dreamworld label, uh, The Love is Blue, and three other tracks. So we really started, we took shape pretty quickly, I have to say. Um... And we were in the studio pretty quickly, and we were on tour of Europe very quickly. Which, um, which is an incredibly quick progression, because most people spend quite a bit of time to get that far, don't they? And a lot of bands get to that point where they think, actually, I've really had enough. This is not going anywhere. But then, but you managed to sort of get it sort of rolling quite... And when, when you started playing, did you sort of think, actually, we sound quite good, rather than, this sounds a bit rubbish? No one's going to listen. I did. No, I thought, we were, I thought we were really good, considering I wasn't that good a guitarist, but I think Gordon carried most of the weight for us because he had a 12-string. So I do a bit of jingle, but he did a whole lot of jangle, you know? Um, it seemed like Dan was just always telling me, you've got to form a band, you've got to form a band. I'm like, no, I can't do this. And as soon as I met Emily, it just fell into place very quickly because the um, TV personalities would tour Europe fairly frequently. And it just seemed to be very well set up in those days. They had the poster. The poster had the picture from the first album cover, Steed and Twiggy. And it said TV personalities. There was always room for the uh, support band underneath. So he'd taken other bands with him. And as soon as we were ready to go, we were just hooked in and off we went. And it went very quickly. As I say, I met Emily and she was writing songs. Gordon was writing songs. It came together very quickly, and before we knew it, we were in Heidelberg or somewhere, just on a stage. I know um, some people were kind of a little envious of our connections, I guess, but, you know, Dan took other bands too, so. Yes, well, it's, it's good to have friends in high places. But, but then, yeah, so your first EP, which came out in 87, which, to be honest, 87 is possibly my favourite year of music. There were, sure, so, yeah. there were so many good albums come out in 87. So did you, were you kind of aware of that kind of the musical landscape at that time, this sort of, I suppose, that indie pop world that was happening? And also you had all the Red Wedge movement and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, pretty much everybody I knew was in a band. I, I don't think I knew anybody that wasn't, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, we were just in the middle of it all, I would say. Uh, we shared a house with some members of the House of Love. We lived in a, a house in Camberwell for a while. 
Um, obviously, there was um, television personalities. We hung out with them quite a bit. Um, I didn't make notes about these people that were just all friends of ours. Yes, which was quite, right. which was phenomenal. So when you did, you did the first EP, which was this one, and Love Is Blue, which was sort of, it was a four track, wasn't it? It, was it is a four track, yes. Which was kind of, um, yeah, mostly. So did you do any of the songwriting or was it mostly Gordon and Dan? It was Gordon and Emily. Um, we did a couple of Dan's songs, but I think they were pretty adamant from the beginning, you know, we're not going to be a Dan Tracy band because, yeah, he did help us get going, but it was just, it was fortuitous that they could both write pretty well. I couldn't, i got to be honest. I couldn't write or sing a song to save my life. So... Yes. You're talking yeah. to me. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, yeah. Well, then, but then when you brought out the second single, which was They Fell For, what did they, they fell for words like love. Um, yes, yeah, so was that, that was in the same year. So by then you were sort of on quite a creative flow. Yeah, that was a seven inch single. So for some reason, the 80s were really big into um, 12 inch. Everything had to be 12 inch, even if it only had three tracks on it. Yes. And it wasn't just the indie world. That would be like Miss You by the Rolling Stones or something. I don't know. But it was like it just seemed that that was the thing. So you had a lot more room to play with with your covers. But um, Fell For Words Like Love was was a seven-inch horrible cover, um, terrible photo. Yeah, um, Because there wasn't a lot of money, you were offered maybe two colors. And that was always a problem for me. The first one had a really good photograph on it. Um we did the album Trash Mantra. Yes. And I had a great photo of Gordon, I have to be honest. And it looked like somebody photocopied the paper, screwed it up into a ball, laid it flat, and then did the album cover from that. So that was always my pet peeve. Not the best covers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, that was that was well. It was better than the this the the previous single you mentioned because at least his hair has been coloured, hasn't it? We, a bit of a yellow. Is that yellow and green? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah you, you're never going to love that colour, are you? But then, yeah. because on there, that was quite interesting because most of the songs, without going into too much detail, are quite short. And then you do an epic one, which is nearly seven minutes. Cat's got nine. Have you sort of listened to that lately and thought, crikey, we've gone prog rock here? <laughs> yes, Cause, cause I that... have. Um, I'm actually attempting a little slide guitar on that one. Um, a lot of these are kind of like one or two takes, and I would have loved to have maybe done a third take. Uh, but, yeah, it's, wow, I haven't listened to these in such a long time, and they've been sent to me. You've clearly been listening. Yes, I've had a listen. And well, it was just because they're slowly, I guess they've all been mastered. So they're all going to be sort of getting going towards the production line very soon. So then, obviously, you know, things were going. So then what happens towards the end of the decade when, when you'd sort of, because there was this, this other one which came out on, was it Constrictor Records, which is the, a German label, which featured Love is Blue and Jack. Was that just a compilation at that stage? Constrictor was a German compilation, and what happened was we only had so many tracks, but they did seem to be re-released all over the place. Um, there was one in Germany, there was the British one, and then we met up with Greg Shaw, which is a... Do you want to hear my story about Greg Shaw? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he 
He's a great guy. Um, the legendary Greg Shaw from Vox Records. Rest in peace. Um, Dan had been communicating with Greg quite a bit, and that was by mail, obviously, in those days. Um, and there was a lot of interest. He sent, he sent, now Greg sent Dan about four steps, no, three steps LPs. I can't quite remember. He sent him quite a few albums, and they were interested in helping each other out. Um, and we would sit around listening to the steps, and I was thinking, I want to photograph this band. They look interesting. So Emily had a club, the room at the top. Oh, uh, so was that her club? It was, I think it was a collaboration with Dan and Emily. But yes, that was Emily's thing on the side as well. She promoted quite a lot of gigs. So she would have had My Bloody Valentine, um, apparently Happy Mondays, um, The House of Love. I mean, if you look back and you can see flyers for these gigs, you're like, two quid gets you all this. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. I mean, you took it for granted at the time, but it was quite amazing. Um, felt. Dear old Lawrence. So you, you all sound like you are sort of an amazingly happening group of creative people. You all sort of knew everyone. You, you were so well networked. That divided. Yeah, I mean. Sorry, yeah, we took it for granted. I never really thought about it, but yeah, everybody knew, as I say, was in a band. Um, Lawrence used to hang out with Phil because Phil would play with Felt. As I say, we shared a house with some members of the House of Love. Um, who else? I haven't done enough research. I'm trying to think. Throw some band names at me. God. Um, <laughs> apart from Silverfish or the Faith Faith Healers, they they actually I think they came around a bit later. Well, I don't know. They must have been sort of a bit on the scene because I think I saw Silverfish when they were supporting my bloody Valentine at Norwich Arts Centre around the late eighties. So, um, but there was a kind of because the music scene had slightly changed after sort of eighty seven because after. You know, the Smiths called it a day. A lot of other bands sort of realised that things had changed as well. And also the drugs were changing. And so the ecstasy scene was happening. So unless you were going to, you know, do this sort of Happy Bundy Stone Roses, Super Dragons, you know, listening to sort of those kind of June Brides, you know, go-betweens, you know, it was all kind of a bit over, really, wasn't it, for, for those kind of bands? I mean, I, I know the Sundays came along just at the time when I thought the kind of party's finished, but they just still did a brilliant first album. I mean, God knows who bought the second one, but I mean, the first album was a classic, but then you had the dancing, then you had grunge. So, so a lot of those kind of bands that I've interviewed have just, you know, said, you know, they just couldn't, they just realised that they'd sort of weren't going to kind of be able to make that kind of creative jump and create something that sounded a bit like, you know, a rave classic, really. And also, I think yeah. mo a lot of bands that I've interviewed, they do have that five-year narrative where they, they by, by that fifth year, they've just about had enough of it all because their relationships between each other weren't great and, and there was definitely a lack of money as well. And I think people were just kind of keen to move on, really. Yeah, I think the lack of money was... Everybody suffered from that, I think. Um... I actually, I was listening to one of your um, interviews with somebody the other day, excuse me, and you were talking about things like people being on the dole and the enterprise allowance, and that reminded me, I actually did the, I went down the enterprise allowance route, and also I got a grant from the Prince's Trust um, to set up my own darkroom, and I'd forgotten all about that. Yes, um, well, Prince well, Charles gave me a thousand pounds. Yes, well, well, that's compared to you know his 
Yes, I mean, it's probably got a bargain, actually, for him. Now that he's got to um, work out what he's going to do with his sons. But, um, yes, that's another story, isn't it, really? <laughs> a thousand pounds is like, oh, that's fine. Yeah, I know, there was all these schemes. And I have to say, that enterprise allowance scheme was kind of... At the time, I was very cynical about it. But now you think, God, that was genius. I mean, dear old Thatch. She did, she did help the indie world quite a lot, you know, where... We wouldn't have had, you know, Big Flame and Bogshed if we probably hadn't got sort of, you know, Thatch and her enterprise allowance. So, um, yeehaw, C86, and, you know, we owe her so much, but not really. But, yes, that that was kind of a big thing, I think, for a lot of those bands. And the squatting period, because I kind of realised that there was just a lot of good squats in London at the time. Because a lot of the bands I'd done interviews with, especially the Australian bands and, and New Zealand, um, the Chills, basically, they, you know, often would come to London because they needed to sort of make that kind of career move because they weren't going to sort of get too far staying in their respective places. And coming over to London, you know, they went, oh, yeah, you just went to a squat. And, and there was just like, oh, that's quite handy because obviously there was, again, no money. So... They couldn't really put any rent down. So, yeah, it, it did create. And I suppose that's why there is so are so many kind of recordings and so many bands from the 80s, because it was just kind of a thing that a lot of, gener you know, a gen quite a generation of people decided to do. Yeah, I think what it was was the GLC didn't seem to care if you squatted. I mean, like Gordon and Alvin were squatting an ambulance station. And it wasn't just called the ambulance station, it was ambulance station it had like flats above it i guess where the people used to live and firemen or ambulance guys i'm not sure but that was a really large building and then um where we lived in camberwell the whole street was pretty much squatted and they didn't mind they had plans down the road to turn them into co-ops and things and if you put a tarp on the roof to stop the place from leaking they were perfectly happy with that so it was it was a very short period of time, but it was a lot of fun because it just seemed like everybody in the street was doing something. Everybody was in a band. Everybody was know, photography, painting, whatever. It sounds terribly romantic, but um, looking back, it was a fun time. I'm just trying to think of the bands like The Servants, obviously, um, with Phil King Connection. There was Servants, there was Apple Boutique. Obviously, through the TVPs, there would have been like the Chemistry Set and Blue Train. Um, a lot of these young guys came down from Scotland and they would stay on um, Dan's floor. Yes. Had a flight well, one of the most interesting or amusing interviews I did was with a guy who was the, the lead singer of 1000 Violins. Oh, yes. And um, yes, <laughs> that's quite an interview. And um, yes, and he's got some amazing stories about staying with Dan. So that's quite, uh, yeah. So there was obviously... Yes, Sheffield was definitely a sort of another place where I think quite a few bands had sort of, you know, that the Dan Tracy connection was quite big at the time, you know, so um, that helped. But you were talking about Greg Shaw and because he was oh, yes. that from all the way from San Francisco and he did, was it Bop Records that he did all those kind of slightly garage punk songs or um, artists? Yeah, um, Greg was based out of, um, was it? Burbank in California and he had a lot of those kind of grungy pudding head long haired guys um, but the steps were different um, if you're familiar with the steps then you know what I'm talking about um, he came over to tour with them and to put them in the studio he's really excited about them and we were at we were at Emily's club one night and I was just chatting to him and he said he was bringing the steps over. 
So I was really pushing to get to do the album cover. So I thought, this is interesting. I like these guys. I've listened to a lot of their work. Can I please do the album cover? Because I'm a photographer. And he's like, oh, okay, we'll look into that. And then he had a list. And he showed me the list of bands that he was interested in. And Spacemen 3 are on that list. And The Hangman's Beautiful Daughters are on the list. And I was like, oh, yeah, by the way, that's my band. <laughs> After talking to the guy for like half an hour. Um, so, yeah, we all became good friends. And I would actually travel to California to see Greg. And eventually I married one of the steps, Mr. John Fallon. Wow. Um, we lived happily ever after. <laughs> that is that is such a good story. And I have to say that's like, it's like kind of, so basically you are rock royalty, aren't you? Oh, actually I have a son who's in a band too. He's really good. Um, I think guitar-wise the apple fell a little further from the tree. My tree. <laughs> more like his dad's side of the tree. My... um. Yeah, my son had an album out on Rumbar Records. I'm going to give him a little plug because obviously I'm a proud mum. Yes. And uh, he yeah. was reviewed in Shindig. And um, his dad plays, he plays in his dad's band too because his dad's no longer in the steps. He's in a band called the Laissez Faire's. All these bands have to be spelt <laughs> because they're not the traditional spelling. Um, I noticed on my son's Instagram last night that he. Uh, he flew to San Francisco to see the Flaming Groovies, and there's a picture of him hanging out with Cyril Jordan. Excellent. And uh, that's that's wild. That, is that would be like if my mum was still alive, it would be like my mum seeing a picture of me and my husband with Jack Jones. <laughs> yeah, that must yeah. must take quite a double take. So then, as uh, with you know, with the Hangman's Beautiful Daughter, how do you, how's the end of the story? Oh, the end of the story. Um, what year would have that have been? Well, there'd been a lot of touring. There'd been a lot of gigs. Not an awful lot of recording, but a lot of our stuff being released around Europe. And then eventually with Greg Shaw, we were, um, we were put out in the States. All vinyl, of course, because CDs hadn't really taken off in a big way yet. Um I think it just got to the point where you can only go so far. And as somebody who's not that proficient as a guitarist, I think I'd gone as far as I could go, to be honest. Um, when the band's playing and everybody's kind of getting into some kind of groove and I'm looking across and I really can't tell what they're doing. It was, I think I'd gone as far as I could go. And we kind of just, just kind of fell apart very quickly. So, unfortunately yes yeah. did, did you have a moment where you sat down and said you know not a ziggy stardust moment but it kind of you know actually more of a jim morrison this is the end mm, no i think the others were going to try and continue without me because i was like i can't do this anymore and it just i don't think they did i think they might have done no no, I think it, it probably ended as, as quickly as it started, I have to say. While there was a lot of motivation to keep going, we were. We were going full throttle. But we were, there was talk of, of, you know, going to play the States. And it just really didn't amount to much. It just kind of slipped away the way the way these things do. Yes. yes. It sounds like a Joy Division line, really, doesn't it? But did you um, <laughs> walk away in silence? So did you, when you all stepped away from the band 
Did you keep in touch with each other or did you just all sort of just just drop it and walk off? Well, for me, it, it was it was slightly different because I was leaving town. I actually moved to America. And because there was no Internet, you would have to just count on writing each other letters. Um, and because I had a baby, I had no time to be writing letters to people thousands of miles away. It just kind of we just sort of went off and did our own thing. Um, yeah, I moved to Chicago and I was working and I had a small child to raise. So I didn't keep in touch and I wasn't really aware of that much of what was going on. Um, there were sad little things like I would be in a Barnes and Noble, like a bookstore, and I would see a Mojo or an Uncut or, you know, Shindig, one of those kind of magazines, and I would flip through it. And for instance, I um, I saw a photo of, of Kevin Godfrey, Epic Soundtracks. I was like, hey, that's one of my photos. Oh, and then wow. it's like, oh, it's the obituary. Shit. Um, and people started dying. Yeah. <laughs> Bastards. Bastards. <laughs> <laughs> and Nicky died and Roland Howard died. And you no. Know, yes. I don't want to end on a, a depressing note, but it just seemed like, you know, we should maybe end this another way. Yes. I just I just I was just thinking of that spinal tap where they had the black cover and they said death cells. But um yeah, so you so just briefly on your photographic life, because you, you haven't sort of mentioned that we have a bit. But did you so were you just kind of at that stage, you know, like Mick Rock? If you, and I hope you don't hate Mick Rock photographs, but you know, if were you sort of kind of just doing yeah, just just photographing a lot of bands and, and sort of during a period of time? Not that many. I did a few. Uh, as I say, when I was a kid, I had a dark room under the stairs at my parents' house. And then when I moved out, when, especially when I got my Prince's Trust money, I was up, able to upgrade quite nicely. Um, I would photograph bands. I did um, I did some stills for Edwin Collin, Edwin, what's his name? Shilly Shally. Sorry, I'm, oh, I'm suddenly blanking. That's okay. <laughs> I need to eat more. <laughs> I would do the odd video stills. Um, I also would work on the side for photographers in the dark room, which was quite sad because you'd get there in the morning, you'd be alone all day in the dark, and then you'd go home in the dark. Yeah. Just go to bed. Um but I did I got in a few magazines. Um it was paid work, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so when you so so I you know, obviously when the band finished their body wasn't sort of royalty checks to sort of worry about and stuff like that so when did you start to sort of reflect back on on the sort of the, the sort of the 80s period and think god that was you know quite interesting because because often in the moment of walking away one just has to get on with the next part of life and sometimes you, yeah. just, you just want to sort of not bury it but just want to slightly give it a bit of a break mentally and just forget it so did you you know I just wondered when occasionally you would think geez he's you wouldn't believe it, but I used to be in a band. And occasionally sort of see the name mentioned thinking, God, that was me. But, you know, obviously, if you were in a bar doing that, they'd probably think you're mad. But, you know, at the same time, you think, yeah, it really is me in that band. Yeah, I think being married to one of the steps, because my husband kept going to a certain extent, um, I didn't really think about it that much. I didn't really talk about it. I didn't really, like, show the albums to anybody when they came to the house. It was just... I just kind of moved on. And then there was a point when I connected with Phil again. Um, Phil was in the Jesus and Mary chain and he came into town and I went and saw them. 
at the Hard Rock or somewhere. And he's come in a couple of times now. Um, seeing Phil again actually did. It did open it all up for me. Um, and then I started looking on the internet and like, oh, that's my photo. Oh, I took that. Oh, this is my band. And that really wasn't that long ago. Maybe yeah. mm, good few, you know, a handful of years. And then Phil said, you know, Cherry Red is interested and they want to put out these tracks on the compilation albums. So I said, well, okay, you know, we weren't bad. Um, yeah. So it has been fairly recently that I have become more involved Instagram I had to put up a Facebook page because if I hadn't, Cherry Red would have done it and then just ignored it probably. Um, so because of the tracks being re-released on compilation albums, I thought I really should do something a bit more. So I put up a Facebook page and just put a few photos out and left it at that. Um, and obviously we're getting more attention now because the album is about to be re-released. So I'm kind of in the thick of it right now. Yes, and as yes. I say, meeting up with, with the lads again, even if it's just through email, um, I would love I would love to really just go back to London, hang out with them for a while. But I think everybody's kind of scattered at this point. I don't know, so. <laughs> emotionally, but physically they'll all be there. But physically. Do, so, so what, um, I mean, obviously, you know, you mentioned Phil and Gordon, but what about Emily? Because she was obviously one of the main people. Do you, did she sort of just walk away from it all? Yeah, Emily has been very hands off. She, um, she talks to Gordon and she trusts him and she knows he's going to do the right thing because Gordon's doing most of the heavy lifting. He's responsible for, um, getting everything remastered. Um, Ray is doing the Wikipedia page. So really the lads over on that side are probably doing a bit more than I am. It's like I've done my bit and it's time for somebody else to take over. So Gordon is putting a video together. Um, I think Optic Nerve has a pretty good press crew. Yeah. Um, so nobody has to hustle to get any of that done. It's all being taken care of, which is really nice, I have to say. Yes. So when the, the album's coming out on the 27th of March, 2020, yes. I mean, obviously there was no reunion, but is there going to be some sort of launch party? Mm, I don't know. I mean, I could do one here. <laughs> Vegas, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so get Celine Dion to do one of the numbers. That would be fine. <laughs> like a live hookup from the bunkhouse downtown Vegas. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> there, you could, you could is... have punk and bowling. They, they love the, that combination, don't they? Punk and bowling, which the festival or that kind of three-day, five-day thing with all the oh. punks. Punk, punk rock bowling, yes, yes, yes. I have friends that are interested in that, but I don't attend myself. I don't like anything too loud anymore, I have to say. Um, there is some talk that I might have a little photo exhibition um, somewhere in London in March, some hip little venue. So it would be nice to actually go to England for that. Because normally the only time, the only person I ever see every few years is Phil when he's coming through either in Lush or the Merry Chain or... Um, since my dad passed away, I really don't have a real reason to go to England anymore. So I just go to Ireland to see the relatives. Yes. Um, but yeah, it would it would be good to meet up with them, obviously. So what? So, so lastly, just a couple. I mean, what would you say to a, 
an 18 year old self kind of starting out in that kind of interesting world that is music and in you know the creative arts or well, 18 year old me or 18 year old anybody it could be either, really. You know, just that thing that you, th you know, that you've picked up over the decades. Thinking, God, I would love to. I would have loved to have told myself that bit of kind of advice or just top tip. You know, like top tip, kid, wash your hair or something. You know, probably not. <laughs> probably not wash your hair, but you know what I mean. It was just that something that you think, yeah, God, I would have just said. You know, even if they ignored it, I would still want to just say, just you know, do this or don't do that. Well, looking at some of those photos, I wonder, like, did I not have a comb? If you're being photographed that much. But I think the most important thing, I really would have pushed for a second take. <laughs> like we're in the studio. We're on a limited budget. Um, maybe a second or third take with some of my guitar work. I would have really liked to have done some of them again. But that's the limitations, you know, the budgetary limitations of being in a rough and ready little post-punk band, I guess. Yes. <laughs> and what's your kind of fond fondest memory when you sort of flash back to that kind of the 80s and that kind of interesting world of indie pop and Squatland and, you know, all those kind of people? Um, I just think being around like-minded people really just being just enjoying being in in the company of other people who like the same music as you that sounds really simplistic but then you get out into the regular world and people don't seem to care about music i just think that's a shame um i remember once in dublin we watched there was a bunch of children standing in line outside virgin records so i went over there with my husband we were asking them like who are you here to see and it was some kind of wrestling guy <laughs> it was like oh i guess music is over yes. video games became more important it's yes. just that was my fondest memory i mean just sitting around in the backyard of the house in Campbell on a sunny day you tend to remember the sunny days more than the rainy ones there were probably more rainy days in in london than there would have been sunny i remember the sunny ones it's it's um a ray davis vibe maybe yes well it's also i remember a couple of those winters in those early years of sort of living in really crap accommodation, freezing. But, you know, you could do it sort of a couple of times, but the third winter coming, you think, oh, I don't know if I could cope, even at a, a young age, because you just know it's going to be, yes, going to bed with all your clothes on and still feeling cold in the morning. You know, it was kind of, but the first year and the first, second year wasn't too bad, but you kind of think, I can't do this for a third year. Yeah, I mean, leaving home and, and just doing things on your own, there is, yeah, I do look through rose-tinted glasses, i got to say. But they, they were fun times. Yes. We were cold, we were poor, and I wouldn't want to do it now. No, absolutely. <laughs> well, I felt very grown up to have it just, you know, sleeping on, with a mattress on the floor, not even the bed, not even the frame. It felt very like, God, my parents would not be doing this. I'm so, <gasps> I'm so happening. <laughs> we had similar lives, it sounds like. <laughs> it's all good. But look, this has been great. Thank you ever so much for... Uh, this, this yeah it's been just really good to uh to do it so i hope it's been fine for you the interview it's been very enjoyable it's like yeah i'll walk down, down memory lane i feel like i know you because i've listened to so many of your shows now and you have a very distinctive voice oh god so, that's, uh, that makes, but but by the when you were talking about dan tracy there is one interview that i really recommend one thousand violins it all it, he talks a lot about staying with dan tracy and um 
you'll go, oh my God, that's unbelievable. But he's, uh, <laughs> no, his name is Colin, I remember now, but he's very engaging. It was very funny. But um, yes, you just think it was of that moment, wasn't it? Life. Yeah, Pointers Road, I remember it well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that, uh, yes, well, I'll, you know. So Dan's still alive, isn't he? He is. He's in. He's in very poor shape, unfortunately. He's in. Um, he's in a care home. It's very sad. Yes. Uh, it's a sad yes. ending for a really lovely guy. Um, I don't know if he's coming out. Um, he has friends that guard him quite well. They go in to see him and they talk to. They talk to him, the old days, and let him know what's going on now. And as I say, they guide his. They guard his. Um, his privacy 